Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, what can the pursuit of immortality tell us about our humanity? In 2017, the writer Mark O'Connell published a book about the transhumanist movement called To Be a Machine, Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death. Encountering an extraordinary set of people keen to use technology to push the human body past its physical and mortal limits, Mark explored the scientific and ethical questions behind a quest to free human beings from our corporeal cages. At last year's Dublin Theatre Festival, Mark, along with directors Bush Mukarsal and Ben Kidd, premiered a theatrical adaptation of his book. At Ireland's Edge, Mark and Bush spoke to Shiva Quinlan about turning this unusual book into an even more unusual play. Their discussion begins with an excerpt from Jack Cleason. It'd be great if I could um, pause my bladder for the duration of the show or temporarily switch off my body or get rid of it altogether. After all, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place if we didn't have bodies. Our bodies are biohazards. This body has been with me for 41 years. It weighs approximately 76 kilos and tends to be called Mark O'Connell. When people see it, they say things like, Hi, Mark. Or, Hey, Mark. But sometimes they say, Mark? I have a lot of sympathy with, um, with the last position. I often look in the mirror and um, question myself. I look at my reflection and um, struggle to recognize the person staring back at me. Somehow I feel like I don't fit this face. It's fine, my face. It, it just sometimes feels like I could just as easily have a different face or, or even a different body and still be Mark or at least still be Mark. It was thoughts like this that um, often occur when staring at myself in the mirror that set me off on a journey to meet a community of people that believe it's only when we get rid of our bodies that we become our true selves. Um, if you're a little bit shook after that rather existential two minutes, um, fear not, we're going to unpack that with you here. The clip we just saw is from To Be a Machine 1.0, which was co-commissioned by the Science Gallery in Dublin and Dublin Theatre Festival and was premiered earlier this year at Dublin Theatre Festival. Um, The piece itself is a theatre adaptation of Mark O'Connell's critically acclaimed non-fiction book, To Be a Machine, which was adapted by Dead Centre. And I'm joined here this evening by Bush McCarzel of Dead Centre and Mark O'Connell. Um, so with that clip kind of left us maybe on a sort of cliffhanger of transhumanism. Could you unpack for us a little bit what transhumanism is? Yeah, well, transhumanism, as I understand it, is really this quite extraordinary social movement that's predicated on the notion that the next sort of phase of human evolution will involve uh, a merger with technology and that that merger will 
allow us to sort of push out the boundaries of the human condition, um, become smarter, extend our lifespans, and maybe even become immortal. So it's a pretty extreme <clears throat> kind of uh, sci-fi-ish idea, but it's something that has like a really solid constituency in, in Silicon Valley uh, in particular, maybe unsurprisingly, because that's sort of a dream factory of quite sort of crazy moonshot ideas. But yeah, in my book, I spent... Um, really a couple of years just um, going out and meeting people who, you know, subscribe to these ideas, who are transhumanists and um, sort of finding out what makes them tick. And Bush, tell me, what was it about, about transhumanism that, that drew you towards this book to adapt it for, for stage? Well, it was the book itself. The reason was Mark's writing, the style. He's a funny writer, which is always a good start. Um, and there's a clear voice in it, so that it sort of lent itself to... Uh, sort of a character, a theatrical, the narrator really stands out in the book because Mark filters all these strange ideas through his own subjective experience. So that was why we were keen to adapt it to stage. And then the question about how to tell the story of transhumanism, well, at the heart of theatre is the body. It seems to always seem to be the sort of essential element. Uh, it's been what's mourned this year when we've lost the live events it's that we can't gather as bodies in a room. So I'm always keen to investigate what happens if you take away the essential element of the art form and what happens. Does it die or can it survive? So kind of uh, curious to see, uh, experiment with that. And I'd be interested to hear, I guess, how you, you begun your creative process together. So how did you decide which of the many transhumanists you met made it into the, the, the theatre piece? Yeah, well, that was a kind of... Uh, I mean, there were so many fun characters to choose from. Um, but you've got you to go with some of the big hitters. Like, mm -hmm. it wouldn't really be a piece on transhumanism if you didn't go to the bodies in the desert, you know, frozen in, in vats of hydrogen... Mm. Or, uh, nitrogen, excuse me, and then... It, and then uh, Absolutely. And, and what's the, the, the word for that again? Uh, cryonics. Cryonics. Yeah. So how does that work? Um... Well, it's an open question as to whether it does work. It's sort of predicated on the notion that it might work in the future. So, but the principle of the thing is um, you die, and as quickly as possible, your body is brought to one of the very small number of cryonics facilities in the world. Um, and a series of procedures happen to your recently deceased body um, involving replacing all the fluids in your body with like anticoagulants and antifreeze and so on, and you're basically, long story short, um, body is preserved in a really a gigantic thermos flask filled with uh, liquid nitrogen. And uh, most, most patients are beheaded, actually, because it's, it's cheaper um, to, to just freeze the head than the whole body. And the idea yeah. at the end of it is that at some point in the future, um, technology will become sophisticated enough that we'll be able to um, crack open the skull and uh, reconstitute the actual person from the from the thawed brain. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty out there stuff. And, and as it stands, this is a notional belief, a kind of blind faith of sorts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's on that sort of strange inflection point between the scientific and the religious. Um, I've sort of got in trouble in the past for referring to it as a pseudoscience. And it, it, it maybe isn't actually a pseudoscience because there are scientists who believe that, you know, the principle is, is somewhat sound. I mean, to be fair, most scientists think it's so far-fetched as to not even really be worth thinking about. But of all the people who I spoke to, most transhumanists 
It's not that they don't take it seriously. They think it's, you know, it's the best prospect that we have right now for bringing ourselves back from the dead. So why not give it a shot? You know, if if you don't do it, you're definitely not coming back. If you do do it, well, probably you're not coming back. But there's, a, you know, there's a sliver of a chance. So let's. And and what do you think? Up. What do you think triggers transhumanism in a person? Do you think somebody is maybe prone to to adopt such a, a belief system? Or I guess it's like a fear of death seems mm. to be a big part of it. However, how acute that is in you um, or one would lead you to seek get out clauses. Transhumanism seems to be one. Also because it's technology-based, so it's mm. a way of putting your faith in technology as a religion. So I suppose it's whoever gets to the end of the day of a load of Zoom calls and doesn't <laughs> feel that burnout and is ready to keep Zooming all night, and that's probably <laughs> a good starter sign. We might have a transhumanist on our hands. Yeah. So I think uh, somebody, you know, a, a mixture of, yeah, f- of, of, of yeah, those factors. Fear and faith. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. yeah. It's a combination of those two things. Fear of death, faith in technology. You've got yourself a transhumanist. <laughs> and, and do you see... Do you see transhumanism as, as being somewhat maybe an evolution of religious beliefs that are rooted in eternal life? Or is it something that, a belief system that perhaps runs in parallel? Yeah, I mean, there are transhumanists who are also religious, but, you know, it's a pretty small subsection. Uh, by and large, transhumanists tend to think of themselves as very kind of rigorous rationalists, you know, um, extreme believers in in reason and but there, there's uh, that crossover of like body suspicion that yeah happens that's in right a lot of re- religions I'm that, that a bit for me body suspicion well the way that the, the sort of the body is seen to be something fallible and mm-hmm. the site of sin and the lower aspect mm. and that we need to elevate ourselves into some sort of rational the corruption of the flesh this kind of yeah. narrative which obviously you know has a lot of strange uh kind of politics linked to it often the way that women's bodies are policed a lot of the time or women associated with the body and then men as this sort of rational you know uh, kind of these kind of old ideas mm. which are so dangerous and frankly you know mixed you see some of that creeping into transhumanism mm. as well it's not by accident that a lot of the major figures in the transhumanist movement are men absolutely mm. and that you have this uh, carry on this this old idea finding a new form mm. Um, that somehow the body is something to be denied and overcome. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's like strange, this idea yeah. that like this is not me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm thought, I am consciousness or the soul or whatever it is. This is just a vessel. I think that's something that religions and transhumanism definitely hold And do you think that the ego is central to be able to hold down and lock down a firm transhumanist belief? Unpack that for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I find it interesting that... The majority of transhumanists that I came across in, in your book mostly happen to be men, I think by one. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, is that, is that an acquired sense of, of self within the world? And, you know, drawing on, I guess, those old religious archetypes of, you know, Eve being tossed out of the garden, but most men being painted as patriarchal, patriarchally infallible. Mm. Um, do you think that in any way trickles into a belief system yeah, I mean, I think there's so many ways of looking at this. And obviously, like, I, you know, as soon as I started to look into transhumanism and meet these people, I mean, it became very apparent very soon that the overwhelming majority of them were men. Like, in one sense, it could be just a sort of a demographic issue in the sense that Silicon Valley is really where most of this stuff is happening and the tech world tends to overrepresent men. Um, but I think there's something beyond that. And I think Bush kind of touched on it as well, which is this, like... Um, discomfort with the body. I think there's something about the delusion, for want of a better word, that 
our existence or one's existence could be boiled down to pure thought, pure reason, this idea of like, you know, mind-body dualism or whatever. Um, that we are that just body, data. That right, that we are just data. data. That, yeah. that something about that delusion might be more appealing to a certain kind of male way of thinking. I mean, I'm, you can tell the way I'm talking here, I'm sort of like I'm hedging because it, you do, you have to get into kind of gender essentialism at some level mm. when you start talking about this stuff. But um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe there's a sense in which women typically are more at ease with um, the contingency of the body, with, you know, the, the difficulties of having to live in a flesh and blood body. Possibly that's it. And, and of these transhumanists that you met and, and of these transhumanists' minds that you delved into through the, the process of creating this piece, do you think it's, you know, is it quite as simple as it being a fear of, of experiencing death as, as oneself? Or is it a fear of maybe the notion of death and a fear of having to, to grieve the deaths of, of those that you love? Um, so if one was to adopt a, a transhumanist perspective, are you maybe somewhat absolved from, from maybe the magnitude of grief in that you might feel there's, there's a loophole of sorts? Well, the grief um, is just one of the many sort of earthly emotions that the transhumanists mm. are just trying to like get over all of that mm. stuff. They're like the whole messy day-to-day, being bored, being a kind of high and low, all this stuff is just, is the transhumanists are driven by it. We mustn't forget, whatever we analyze the background um, of, of where they might be coming from, the catalyst for them being becoming transhumanists, they also just believe it's going to work. Mm. Mm. That the, tra- the technology will... Um, Override uh, over, uh, these emotions? Exactly. Well, we'll just allow us to um, escape a phase of human, mm. human existence where we were subject to emotions and they sort of just have a blind belief that it will be possible to become a machine. Mm. And I think, you know, transhumanists, it's not that they believe that we should become machines, it's that they believe that on some level we already are machines. It's just that we are really, like, insufficient to the task. You know, we're we're quite sort of primitive machines in all the ways that Bush has just sort of outlined. And so the task is to upgrade. The task is to, you know... Yeah, there's one cyborg... Well, he calls himself a cyborg. He's into body augmentation that we meet in the book called Tim Cannon. And he Mm. sort of put a device in his arm. So it's a sort of internal thermostat. So whatever temperature the room is, it can adjust his thermostat or whatever his body temperature is. Sends signals signals out to the thermostat and adjusts it. Um, But, you know, he asks the the question, well, if you wear glasses, you know, or if you have a hearing aid or uh, fitted with a coil or use a wheelchair, all different types of body augmentation says, well, this is already type of cyborg reality. And we, you know, he said for him, it's just sort of logical extension of that Mm -hmm. kind of attitude Mm -hmm. towards um, augmenting ourselves to improve our lives that would lead to total replacement of the body Mm -hmm. with a sort of cyborg uh, alternative, you know. And I suppose uh, I have to confess to some some biohacking on my part. Mm. Um, I'm fitted with the bar of Implanon, um, which is a, a contraceptive okay. bar. Okay. Okay. So d- I guess that makes me technically a, a cyborg. I guess, yeah. yeah, it's on a spectrum for sure. Yeah, and I'm wearing orthotics in my shoes. So <laughs> Therefore, frankly, you're you're, you know, you're a, a hardcore more biohacker. Or less yeah. Terminator, right now. Yeah. And would you ever consider <laughs> implementing biohacking into your creative process? Yeah, well, you know, tech, we, I, I don't know exactly if, we, if, if that happen, comes about. Maybe in the next version of this show, the next iteration, we might look into uh, 
those kind of things. If we found an actor willing enough to uh, allow themselves to be biohacked, then maybe we might be a bit ethically dubious, but we'll look at that. We'll get into the contracts with, on that later. But with this uh, show, the point was to try to see what, where technology and, and art can speak to each other. And in the context of COVID, you know, what was initially seen, and of course, there's a major catastrophe of, of, of the fact that we can't gather and that all the shows had to go online, um, that was initially seen as a bad thing and mm. everyone was mourning that this isn't the real thing. And of course, you're just trying to turn a problem into an opportunity to meditate on, although it's clear what is lost, is there another way? What's gained in, in that loss? Is there a way that that loss can speak to something? So in this show, we had the audience upload themselves into uh, iPads. So the performer, Jack Gleason was looking out onto an audience of 110 iPads and the people watching at home could sort of see themselves in this disembodied way and it, it, there's ways of, of interacting with that experience that wouldn't happen if they were there. So you still can speak to, uh, to some of the ideas of transhumanism and disembodied uh, beings in a way you could, simply couldn't do that. So I don't know, I'm always interested in what technology will allow, how it will allow you to expand the art form, you know? Um, discover yeah. different possibilities. I think we got really lucky with the with the virus in a way that it allowed us to like explore the themes of the book in a way that we might not have done. Yeah, we probably wouldn't have occurred. Stage. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean like, you know, like Senator Rand was saying in the last talk here, the, the digital divide she spoke about, there's a, a lot of dangers with the brave new world of uh, what live streaming allows for. Uh, I think Naomi Klein spoke about used the phrase the screen new deal as well as sort of the, the new hierarchies and politics that come in but of course there's a lot of those hierarchies uh, and, and inequalities are in place in the traditional format as well when you go into the theater whether there's issues of accessibility or economic barriers for who can go and see what shows or educational barriers of what makes somebody feel comfortable in that environment a lot of those are dissipated when somebody can stay at home and feel suddenly they are welcome and part of the audience mm -hmm. um, of that particular show. So, uh, you know, there's, there's opportunities. And, and what did it feel like to have a disembodied audience in an empty theatre? Was that intimacy still present in, in the performance space? Or Yeah, it was curious. I mean, before each show, just before it started, uh, we turned on our audience mm -hmm. in the literal sense. Of that. <laughs> Hopefully, finally, in the, we you know, <laughs> got them in, uh, worked up in a happy way too, but they were, they were turned on and Jack would go and see who was in mm. for the evening and he'd look at all these screens and he'd you know oh your god my sister's okay mm. cool oh my agent damn it i better <laughs> get this right tonight you know and there was a sort of sense in which he felt a responsibility to the audience even uh, uh, even though they were in a remote form so that was interesting and they were still there in a way and you were still aware also, I appreciated them not being there at the end. You didn't go for endless drinks after each performance. Right. So it was better for my liver as <laughs> yeah. well, having a remote audience, I have to say. In much better post-production shape. Big time, yeah. But I think that there was something really intimate about it as well. You know, despite the like extreme level of technological mediation, you know, just watching it on a laptop, the faces, the audience's faces, there's a real intimacy in those, in those like moments where, you know, the audience have given us this thing you know uploaded them themselves to the show and you know there's moments of them with their eyes closed and laughing and staring and there's a real intimacy i think in a way that yeah transcends the technological limitations in a way mm -hmm. and through the process of creating this piece would you find yourself swayed to to be a transhumanist 
Well, I'm always picked Ben Kidd, my colleague, who's co-artistic director of Dead Center, and Mark. They they will sort of pick on me and call me the transhumanist <laughs> because I seem to be more amenable to some of the it. positions. He's got he's a susceptibility to it. I'm not I'm not a card carrying, but I see the sort of endpoint. You sort of see that with the, the, the tendencies of that we are all trying to make. You know, the whole of society is trying to become more efficient always, and uh, like you know, we always try to save time in, in everything we're doing in our lives. So you can sort of see the tendencies that we're on and a lot of them we, we subscribe to unwittingly or unwittingly. So I think there's a part of it. And sure, I wouldn't mind sticking around a bit longer than my however many years I'm, I'm allotted. Mm. But yeah, I wouldn't say I'm fully signed up. How about, what's your sense of that? Well, I'm, you know, uh, I'm sort of reserving judgment. And in a way, like the, the, the ideal version of the book when I wrote it for me would have been a version in which I begin my sort of journey, for want of a better term, into this world, uh, skeptic. And then, you know, have that skepticism questioned and broken down at every step of the way and then finally have a kind of a, you know, Damascene conversion moment or whatever the term is. And uh, that didn't happen. You know, I remained open-minded but basically sort of unsold on the idea of transhumanism. But in a way, I, I began from a... I mean, I would never have written the book if I just wanted to debunk it or, you know, prove it to be, you know fallacious or, or foolish or you know I, I began with a kernel of identification I think and f you know for reasons that we've talked about you know none of us really want to die you know we're all in one way or another in a sort of uncomfortable relationship with our own mortality and there was something really fascinating to me about the idea of people who are out there not just having sort of existential conversations about it or you know having you know dark nights of the soul but actually rolling up their sleeves and saying, well, we've got some technology, we've got some money, let's see what we can do about this. That's really fascinating to me. And so there's a certain amount of, you know, identification there. Um, and what's been really interesting about working with Bush and with Ben is that, it, like, in a way, Bush is kind of, like, a step further down that road, I suppose, towards being uh, open to transhumanism. And so that, what he brought to it, uh, amongst other things, was that sort of, well, let's see. Let's 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 see what it would be like to occupy that position. Um, and so I feel like we've just outed you as a transhumanist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> my mum's not watching. He's not here. This isn't uploaded. <laughs> um, and do you think there's a way of being, you know, maybe not quite a hardcore transhumanist? You know, maybe you mightn't invest in, in being beheaded and put into a tub of nitrogen. But do you think there are positive, you know, values systems embedded within transhumanism that could be? adapted on maybe like a more a more low-key transhumanist level? Well, it depends on how you define it. I mean, there's a way of defining transhumanism where you would sort of categorize it so broadly that it's almost indistinguishable from medical science because really what you're talking about is just improving the human condition and like pushing out sort of the boundary of mortality. And that's really what, you know, medical scientists, doctors have been doing for, you know, centuries in some form or another. Um, but I think there is something qualitatively different about transhumanism, which is that, you know, at the most extreme edge, and really the most interesting edge, they want to discard the body entirely. They want to move on to some other way of being human or even not being human um, at all. So it's difficult to say whether there are good things to be taken from that. There are so many elements of humanity that are, you know, to use a transhumanist term, suboptimal. Um, it's, it's a bit, I think of it sometimes as a bit like, you know, the space program or something, you know. Maybe we're not going to get to Mars, but, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to colonize other planets, but there might be technologies that might sort of 
be generated by those efforts that might be useful um, to other things. But I think I'm, I'm still ultimately, um, I think I still see it as being a folly. I don't know if I would put it quite that bluntly, but um, yeah, an interesting folly. But it's like if it is a folly, it's it's a folly that reveals certain crucial aspects of our culture, of capitalism, and in some ways of just humanity itself. There's like nothing new really about any of this. It's as old as humanity, the desire to transcend humanity. And and through this process of exploring transcending in the form of transhumanism. Have you discovered any maybe antidotes to transhumanism, but other forms of, let's say, transcending um, in order to maybe, you know, be able to sit with the issue of um, this old existential dread, which somewhat underpins the, the piece? Have we found it like in our private lives? <laughs> Have we found med- meditative space? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, wait, I mean, the art of dying basically is the sort of antidote, the opposite. Um, if the, the whole of transhumanism is in a drive to escape, dying um, but actually to succumb accept and die well and die together can be a nice thing and the theater is a way of uh, dying as we say in the, in the show we come together to die in real time um, and so everybody in the theater when you sit together are dying at the same time and we do and, and we can synchronize you know and that, and that is kind of a beautiful thing but it doesn't mean much but it has poetic Resonance, so that, but the transhumanists would have no truck for that because there's no use. It doesn't mean it. It's not. It's useless data, but it's not useless if you're the one dying. It's the most meaningful data there is. So yeah, there's sort of uh, the importance of uh, meaninglessness as well is sort of theatre and arts antidote to the ultra utilitarian mindset of transhumanism. Mm. And I believe to be a machine 1.0 we'll be having another outing soon that's right another yeah. chance to, to die within the theatre that's the plan we are going to uh, the Berg Theatre in Vienna I'm flying out in a couple of days to make a German language version which excellent. will have a premiere on New Year's Eve yeah. excellent and any other plans to develop further into a 2.0 yeah they are, they are. We, we were going to keep working with our video designer and technical director Jack Phelan is just a, a kind of whiz and uh, might double down on the digital opportunity and make an app. We were thinking of making an app whereby the audience can pick the, the costume, the setting, the um, music and then score it themselves and you can have a really a sort of subjective experience of, of being at the, not at the theatre. Excellent. Well, we greatly look forward to watching the evolution of To Be A Machine and thank you both very much for joining us Thanks, this evening. Friend. Thank you to Mark O'Connell and Bush McCarcel for joining Shaver Quinlan and Dingle, and to Jack Gleason for his performance. On our next episode, Jim Carroll speaks to aerospace engineer Sinead O'Sullivan about chaos theory, Taylor Swift, and the perfect hit. I guess the technical thing that I'm trying to do is use kind of the complexity and chaos theory that I used at NASA to think about creativity. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.